Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have little ones first grade and under who'd like to go over for children's worship, they will line up at the door, and Miss Brittany and Miss Savannah will take them across the way with Mr. Chris to our Children and Youth Discipleship building. So when I first became the pastor of Faith Presbyterian low those 12 years ago, there was a series of questions that everyone wanted answered. What does the pastor believe about the end of the world? Does he believe in the rapture? Is he premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial? If you don't know what those words mean, it's okay. Don't, don't fret. You can ask me later. In response to those questions, I did what any foolhardy young pastor would do. I embarked on a verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation during Sunday school. And what became clear in that class is that we didn't all agree. We all had different positions on what the Bible says about the end times and these various prophecies that come up here and there. And I do care what you believe about the end of the world. I do care what you believe about how things are going to be tied up. It is important, but Christians can disagree on this in good faith and on reasonable grounds. So let me say this. Each view of the end times has its own strengths and weaknesses. Some are easier to argue for than others biblically. Some are more reasonable than others But it's going to be very difficult to prove that my view is the right one or that your view is the right one. In fact, we won't know until the day that Jesus comes back. So what do we do with these differing views that we can have? Well, since none of us can definitively say that our view of the end times is correct, it would be wise to ask a different question. What does my view produce in me. What you believe forms your thinking, your intentions, and your actions. Our faith always flows out into works. So what do your beliefs about the end time cultivate in you? And here's what I've learned after 15 years of pastoral ministry, of talking to people about this stuff. Every view of the end times has its slippery slope, its own worst version of itself. 
When you think about the stereotypes of different views of the end, this is where that comes from, from each one's slippery slope. When you think about the straw men that we set up to argue for our own position, it's usually the, the worst possible version. And in today's text, Jesus talks about the end of the world. And I'm going to preach the text from my position. And my position would probably be categorized as post-millennialist. Now, some would argue that that's not true. If I'm not a post-millennialist, then I'm the most optimistic amillennialist you've ever met. If you don't know the terms, don't worry about it. But that's the camp that I fall into. And I believe my view's right. I believe my view is biblical. But my goal today, today, my goal today is not to persuade you to be a post-millennial. I would like you to see my view as biblically reasonable and persuasive, but I actually want to press you on your view of the end of the world. And here are the questions that I think each of us should be able to answer about our own personal view. First, can I argue my position clearly from the Bible? We all need to be able to answer that with a resounding yes, I can argue it from the Bible. But second, how does my view of the end impact my feelings and beliefs about the present and the future? So first, can you argue your position from Scripture? This is not meant as an insult to anybody. But most people I talk to about their view of the end times, when I press them and say, where do you get that? They can't show me in the Bible. Because they're, they're, they're repeating what a preacher they trust has said. Or they're repeating what a book they've read says. Enough of that. Show me what you believe in the Bible. You need to be able to do that. But second, what does your view produce in you? How does your position on the end times influence your feelings and beliefs about the present and the future? It's strange how people... When they start talking about the end times, they, they're using all this biblical language. They're talking about these visions in Ezekiel and in Daniel and Revelation. And they're painting this picture that sounds very biblical. And then they apply it to the present. And they apply it to the future. And their application of these biblical ideas don't sound biblical, but they don't even sound Christian. It's like there's some kind of jump that gets made in their thinking, and they've totally exited the biblical way of thinking about the present and the future, and it doesn't even sound Christian. So, how should our view of the end times impact our view of the present and the future? How should those beliefs influence our thinking, our actions, etc.? So that's what I want to explore this morning, those two questions. So let's remember where we left off in the text last week. We're right in the middle of a passage. So Jesus has gone into Jerusalem for the Passover. And as he entered the city, people thronged together, calling out for him to save them. Hosanna, the king of Israel. So they asked the king of Israel to save them. And as the din and roar died down, some Greeks asked for a private meeting with Jesus. But when Jesus heard that request, he made a strange proclamation. He said that his ministry, his public ministry to the Jews, was about to end. It's not that he was going to go preach to these Greeks and to others. No, Jesus realizes that his death is near. So if you have your Bible, we're actually going to jump back a little bit into last week's text, verse 27. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, the hour of his death. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify 
your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. So this is a strange apocalyptic moment. God the Father speaks from the sky. Jesus understands him, but the people don't. And that's okay because the Father was responding to Jesus. Jesus is troubled by the idea of dying soon, but he knows there's a reason for it. That's why he came to earth. So he prays to the Father, Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name through my death. This is similar to what Jesus would say later at the Garden of the Gethsemane when he said, not my will but yours be done. And how does the Father respond to this sentiment from the Son? Look again at verse uh, 28. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The Father very tenderly says to the Son, Jesus... I've already glorified my name, and I will glorify it again. You have glorified me already. Son, through your life of faithfulness, through your love for your people, through your care for your disciples, through the things that you've said and the things that you've done, I have already glorified my name in you, but I will glorify it again. Yes, through your death, but also through your resurrection and ascension to the throne. Now, this would be a beautiful place for the story to stop for the father to respond to jesus in that way it'd be really clean really great reading but the text doesn't stop there so look again at verse 29 the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered others said an angel has spoken to him jesus answered this voice has come for your sake not mine now is the judgment of this world So the situation is apocalyptic already. God is speaking from heaven in a thunderous language for all to hear. And nobody understands it but Jesus. But then Jesus takes it to the next level and says, now is the time for the judgment of this world. He doesn't say the end is near. He says the end is here. Judgment is now. And the now to which he's referring was his death. that would happen in less than a week. The end of the world began. When Jesus died. That's when the end of the world began. The moment that Jesus died. Usually when we talk about the end of the world. We're thinking about some cataclysmic event. That stops human history. This moment. This event. Or brief period. When everything gets wrapped up really quickly. But that doesn't fit what Jesus is saying here. When you think about the end of the world. A better way to envision it. Rather than this kind of brief quick. Instead. uh, There's this idea that probably all of you learned in 8th or ninth grade English that'll help you. And it's called the structure of a story. No doubt you remember this. This shows us how a good story is, is written. You have a beginning, then there's a problem, a conflict. And what does that problem or conflict lead to? It leads to rising action, building tension. And then the story gets to a climax that solves the problem and then... In my English class, they call it the denouement, right? The, the, the resolution of the falling action of the story as it comes to its end. And no doubt you, you remember this. And it's a great way also to think about human history. What's the story of human history? God made everything good 
But then a problem came. And what was the problem? Human sin and its consequences. And when you read the story of humanity in the Bible, you read the Old Testament, it's like it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. The tension rises and the effects of sin, it it even infiltrates the leaders and the priests and prophets of God's people. And it seems as though everything is lost. And then at the climax of history, sinful humanity kills Jesus, the one who had come to save them. That's the worst the world has ever been or will ever be. That the earth rose up and killed God. They killed their Savior. It's the climax of history. But in that moment of remarkable sin, in that moment of remarkable pain and injustice, God saved the world. So from the moment of Jesus' death, The problem of human sin was solved, and the story of human history has been hastening toward its glorious conclusion. So we're on the downslope now. It's not getting worse and more complicated and more difficult. Jesus solved the problem of sin and death, and now the world is hastening toward its end. We are in that falling action, that denouement, that is tying up of all things. Therefore, Jesus says right before his death, judgment is now. But what does that mean? Judgment is now. There's been 2,000 years since that moment of judgment. Look at verses 31 and 32. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. In these two verses, Jesus is describing the resolution The tying up of everything. He's describing the effects of his death, resurrection, and ascension. And the text describes it in four ways. The death of Jesus, and by necessity, his resurrection and ascension. The death of Jesus brought four things. First, it brought justice to the world, which we'll talk about. Second, it began a process of drawing the nations to Jesus. Third, the death of Jesus dethroned Satan and diminished his power. And fourth... The death of Jesus enthroned Jesus at the Father's side in power. All of this was put into play on the day that Jesus died for sins. And as we look at the story's resolution, these are the things that have been being played out since he died and was raised from the dead, starting with justice or judgment. When Jesus died, his cross became the line in the sand. It became the dividing point on which every human being will be judged. Every human being will have to answer the question, do you believe that Jesus died for sinners or not? Do you believe that he was raised from death to victory? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? That's judgment. Our eternal fate is bound to how we respond to the cross. The cross is the critical moment the dividing line upon which every person will be judged. And so after the death of Jesus, we've entered into an era of judgment, a new age. Every person has to decide which side of that issue they stand on. But it's not just a time of judgment. It's also a time of resolution. This era following the cross is a time of salvation. Why was Jesus lifted up on the cross? Look again at the text, uh, 32 and 33. And I, 
when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, what was his intent? What was his end goal? What could it possibly achieve for the world to kill the Son of God? What did it achieve? It achieved the salvation of humanity. The ones who killed him. Salvation was offered to him. He would draw all people to himself through his death. So remembering our story structure, the cross is solving the problem of human sin. And that wasn't just a Jewish problem. That is a problem that every one of us has. It was a Greek problem too. That's why they come to him in this text. They know their lives are jacked up. They know the world is jacked up. So they come to Jesus. So from the cross onward is an era for people of all nations to hear about Jesus and to find salvation in him. And what does Jesus say about that in Matthew 24? He says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So we live in an era of judgment and salvation. What should we expect will happen during this season, during this era? And to what extent? We should be expecting for today... Today, not just the future, but for today, we should be expecting that the good news of Jesus is going to spread and spread and spread to the four corners of the earth until one day people of all tongues, tribes, and nations will not only know the good news of Jesus, they will be saved by the good news of Jesus. Think about this. Before the cross, that message was not spreading. In all the Old Testament and in the Gospels, How many non-Jews followed Yahweh God? Anybody want to venture a guess? We've got like four or five mentioned, you know, in the Old Testament. Not a whole lot. And when Jesus died, how many humans believed in him? His disciples had fled. He had John and the women were there still. It was a really small group. But after the cross, the process of expansion of the gospel moving not just to the Jews and the Samaritans, but to the uttermost ends of the earth. That process of expansion began. But is the job done? Far from it. According to the Joshua Project, which is a group that keeps track of unreached people groups in the world, there are 7,391 unreached people groups on our planet, which means that 42.4% of the human population today does not have access to the gospel. What does that mean they don't have access? Maybe there's one Christian in that group. But there's no church. There's no evangelist. There's no church planter. So there's no one who is out there communicating the gospel in their language or in their culture so that they could hear that Jesus Christ is Lord. What does this mean? First of all, it means we've made great progress. Don't see the 42.4% and not realize that 58% of the world has been reached. The gospel has gotten to them. So we have, man, have we made progress since the cross. But there's still a lot of work to be done. The end of all things is still resolving. We're still in resolution. Salvation is spreading. And how could that happen unless Satan's power on this earth has been diminished? Look again at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. When Jesus died, 
Satan thought he'd won the war. But that could be no further from the truth. In the death of the Son of God and his resurrection, sin and Satan and death were finally defeated. And so we have entered an era not only of judgment and salvation, but also one in which Satan's power is broken and his strength is diminishing. Jesus sits on the throne above the earth and his kingdom is coming. And you might say, how in the world can you say that Satan's power is broken and that it's diminishing? Can't you see what's happening in the world? Of course I do. Sin continues to confuse and to bring death. Of course, there's persecution and conflict and war and division. But at the same time, the gospel is spreading more quickly and further now than it ever has before. More of the population serves Christ today than ever before. And when you consider how few believed on the day that Jesus died, in contrast to how many do now, you begin to see, oh, wow, Satan and the world are losing ground The kingdom of God is spreading on earth, as Hebrews chapter 10 says. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And we see it more and more every day. The death of Jesus was the beginning of the end. It was the beginning of the resolution of human history. And we see it expressed in judgment, in salvation, the dethronement of Satan, and the enthronement of Jesus. Now, you may disagree with me on a lot of what I just said. If you're not a post-millennialist or a very optimistic amillennialist, I said some stuff, you're like, this guy's nuts. He's lost his mind, right? You can interpret this text differently. I know good, solid Christians that do. But here's where I think you have to agree with me. The cross was the climax of the story. The cross is where resolution began. And we now live in the final movement of history. We currently inhabit the end times, and we have ever since the cross. The end times didn't start in the Civil War. It didn't start in the 1960s or Vietnam. The end of history began when Jesus died. But when's it going to conclude? When do we get to the final resolution? Well, the end of the world will conclude once people of all nations worship Jesus. In Matthew 24, Jesus says he won't come back until the gospel has spread to the ends of the earth. But in John's revelation, we see an encouraging uh, parallel to that text when he says this. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a picture of the very end. So Jesus died, was raised and ascended into heaven, and all of history is hastening toward this moment when people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will bow before Jesus and sing his praises. This is how the story ends. This is how history ends. Not just the message spreading, but the message saving people from all nations. So as history hastens toward that end point, what should we be expecting from now, today, and tomorrow, and a week, and month, and decade from now? 
What should we be expecting from the future? And as I said earlier, my view of the end times is called post-millennialism, and this text is very beneficial to my view. There are other texts that are not as helpful to my view. That's why I can't pretend my view is the only reasonable position. Post-millennialism expects the effects of the cross to have reverberating effects through history so that when Jesus comes back, the gospel will have had a remarkable impact in spreading justice, salvation, and the kingdom of Christ through the power of the Spirit. But rather than arguing for my position, I want you to consider the impact and outcome of your view when you walked in the door this morning. As I said earlier, you need to be able to argue your position from Scripture. But the second question, how does your view of the end impact your feelings and beliefs about the present and the future? This is what I believe this text teaches us. Your view of the end should stir up hope, longing, and evangelistic compassion. Hope, longing, and evangelistic compassion. When Jesus said this to his original hearers, especially his disciples, I think this is what he was trying to generate in their hearts. He wasn't trying to give them, here, okay, here's exactly how it's all going to play out. No, he's trying to generate hope and longing and evangelistic compassion. And my concern is that many Christians, when they think about the end of history, their gut response is fear, unrest, foreboding dread. For some reason, our view of the end often leads us to live lives more cloistered and closed off from the world rather than advancing to take territory for the kingdom of God. So if your view isn't stirring up hope, longing and evangelistic compassion, something's off. Something's off. So let's talk about hope first. A biblical view of the end doesn't mean looking through rose-colored glasses. The Bible's really straightforward. Before Jesus comes back to finish human history, there will be ongoing tribulation, persecution, difficulty, false teaching, sin, war, you name it. It's going to happen. But what does our view of the end call us to? Hope. Hope that Christ will prevail. Hope that the church will endure. Hope that one day all nations will worship God. And sometimes I think we get a little too focused on our sliver of life. We look at what's happening in our neighborhood and in our family and just in a very short radius among us. And we forget to realize it's a big world out there. And you can see where the gospel is moving rapidly in places like Africa and China. You don't see it, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. So sometimes we have to back up a little bit and look at the big picture to see, okay, we're still moving toward the end of all nations, all people, all tongues, all tribes, all languages worshiping Jesus. Why do we have that hope? Well, because God told us that's where the world was headed, but also because the war has already been won. Through the cross, the usurper has been dethroned, the dragon has been slain, all things will soon be made right again. So we endure the night knowing that there's only a few hours left. We have hope because Jesus won the war on the cross. The hope of the gospel endures struggle, persecution, sin, and doubt because the definitive work is already done. So does your view of the end stir up that kind of hope? in your heart? Or does it stir something else? Our view, regardless of what our view is, should stir up hope. But not just hope, also longing. Now this text sounds very victorious, triumphant, hope-inspiring 
But we can't forget the fact that sin runs deep in the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls. And sin runs deep in the systems of the world. We can't ignore that the damage we've caused to the created order and to each other is significant. So in short, and this is a, this is a challenge to people like me, post-millennialists, we need to be cautious about an overly optimistic view of the end. When Jesus returns, the scriptures are clear, he will still have decisive recreating and judging work to do. The completion of justice, the completion of salvation, the final and total chastisement of Satan, that will not happen until that day when the world is remade. So our view of the end should cause us to long for that day when Jesus comes back. Because then all sin and sorrow will be done away. All wanting and lack will be made whole. On that day, all things will be made right. So the longing of the gospel keeps us from an over-realized view about the damage sin has caused. The injuries of sin and the invasiveness of evil necessitate recreation. Jesus is going to have to do an overhaul when he comes back. So we do enjoy seeing salvation spreading now. We want to be a part of that work, the spread of Jesus's kingdom, but we do long for Jesus to come back to bring human history to its final consummation. So our view of the end should stir up, yes, hope, but also longing for Jesus's return. And last, it should stir up evangelistic compassion. Now, I've heard people say before, we got to get the gospel to the nations. We got to get that 46% so that Jesus will come back. I don't think... uh, I don't think we can manipulate or bend the story of human history through our evangelism or our lack thereof, right? And I think that's kind of the the feeling that comes from that kind of talk. But here's what our view of the end should be cultivating in us. A realization that judgment has come and salvation is readily available. On the cross, Jesus paid the price for all who believe in him. And what that means is your next door neighbor, your cousin, your friend, your coworker, They don't have to pay for their sins. They don't. Salvation has been made available to them. We live in an era of salvation, and they can be set free through Jesus. The king is coming back soon, and if people will kneel before him and declare him as Lord, they'll be forgiven. And when he returns, they'll find salvation rather than judgment in his coming. So that's the spirit in which our view of the end should be stirring us toward evangelistic compassion, for the people we know and love who don't know Jesus. So in this final age of human history, we have the good news of the cross. Salvation from judgment is available for those who believe. So how do you think the story will end? How do you read the scripture, this scripture and, and others like it? Can you communicate from the Bible what you believe about the end of the world? If not, I'd encourage you to do some study, to think more about it. Talk to me or an elder or a deacon and get some guidance on that. But just as importantly, what does your view of the end stir up in you? Does it stir up hope for the present and the future? Does your view leave you longing for the day when Jesus will return? And does it urge you to tell others that salvation is possible? Our view of the end should inspire hope, longing, and evangelistic compassion. So I invite you to look at your own views and what it's cultivating in your heart. Let's pray. Father, we are creatures who do not have your knowledge, but we have your word. And so as we 
by your spirit aim to read it and understand it and apply it to our lives, inevitably we come to these texts that talk about the end of all things and we fall in different places. Lord, I pray that you will help us struggle with each other and with our differing views so that we will be more true to your scripture. And at the same time, Father, I pray that our views of the end would cultivate in us a different way of thinking, a different way of acting, loving, and moving in our world. Lord, we want to be about your business, about spreading the good news of Jesus, extending his kingdom, taking territory for Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that if there's anything holding us back in our view of the end, that you would help us to see more clearly your word and to think more in line with your spirit. Help us in this regard, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.